the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Andre Gonawala, being joined by my co-host Ryan. And today we are so happy to welcome back for the third time uh, to our podcast, Dr. Kenneth Deklava. Uh, Dr. Deklava is a senior fellow at the George H.W. Bush Foundation for U.S.-China Relations, and he also served in the State Department for a lengthy stint uh, in which he was a regional medical officer and a physician and a psychiatrist. And Dr. Deklava's really good at leadership analysis. He was a phenomenal leadership analyst, analyst, and uh, we've had two great episodes before uh, really focusing in on that expertise. Uh, but today we're going to be talking to him for a somewhat related reason, because uh, Dr. Dekleva has a new book out, a new narrative book called The Negotiator's Cross. Uh, so Dr. Dekleva, or Ken, as I usually call you in casual terms, uh, thank you for joining us here today. Uh, thank you so much for having me back, and I appreciate that you've both uh, read my book and enjoyed it and are, are helping promote it. I'm deeply grateful. Absolutely. Well, it's always a pleasure, Ken. And so let's um, begin by kind of talking about an overview of what the book's about, because, I mean, clearly, as our lis listeners will begin to understand, it's it's definitely informed by your career, but I'm curious as to, one, what the book's about and kind of how you're inspired to write such a book. I I was inspired in many different ways. One, uh, I had I had written fiction, short stories, and and poetry in in the past. Never uh, published it except for one story, which was a story about the Cold War. But that was about a decade ago. And I had I had long wanted to write a, a novel and sort of wrap up a deeper narrative and capture a lot of my life experiences in 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 a fictional form. And all the places I've been to, I've been to over 70 countries. I've lived in multiple countries overseas as a diplomat and also before uh, I joined the world of diplomacy. And, and I've been fascinated by foreign travel, cultures, history, literature uh, for my entire adult life. So I wanted to find a creative way to capture that. And, and it sort of came to me. I had played with the idea of writing a novel and had written kind of a mystery, a murder mystery with international overtones. I wrote a couple of chapters, but that didn't feel right. And then somehow or another this spring, over the course of several months, I was able to write this book, The Negotiator's Cross. It's, it's the story of a priest who's from Texas. I live in Texas and I practice psychiatry in Texas. It's my home, uh, who, who, after a series of haunting and harrowing experiences in, in, in an elite U.S. military unit serving around the world, uh, leaves the unit and becomes a priest. He was raised Catholic. I'm also Catholic. And he, he finds himself tending to a small parish of mostly expats in Mexico City. And things happen that draw him in and pull him in, where because of his prior career and abilities, it, it comes to the attention of powerful organizations such as the US government, the Mexican government, the cartels, that, that he has these unique uh, skills as a negotiator and he gets drawn into a very dangerous and complex web of hostage negotiations as a, a hostage negotiator in Mexico involving a disappeared uh, American businessman who's one of his parishioners. So that, that's how the story sort of takes off. 
and it's it's quite it, it, it sort of sets the stage for his character. One of the things that your listeners may be curious about is why a priest, and because typically when you when you have novels involving hostage negotiation, they'll involve a diplomat or an intelligence officer, a law enforcement officer, or a uh, or an attorney. Uh, I sort of just by inspiration one night came up with the idea that it should be a priest. I'm not sure how that happened to me. It's probably somewhere in my unconscious, but that's the way it ended up. And then the story kind of wrote itself. But then later, uh, after I had written the novel, I, I found out that there are other countries in Latin America and in Africa, such as Nigeria, where priests have been drawn into hostage negotiation because of their network contacts and, and trust within the communities in which they live. So the story sort of starts off in with Father Ishmael in Mexico City, and then it draws in a whole cast of other characters. And because of his work in Mexico City, he's transferred to Moscow by the nunciature, uh, sort of as an apostolic delegate at, at, at large to help deal with the release of a, an American priest who's been taken hostage in Russia and is being held incommunicado by the FSB. The, the ruthless Russian um, intelligence service. And again, he's called, the, the character Father Ishmael is called to help be a part of complex negotiations to release that priest from captivity and is drawn in with other people, including American diplomats, intelligence officers, um, um, GRU officers, FSB officers, and, and the Nuncio, and in Mexico with the cartels. So that the story has a whole cast of characters that weave throughout. So I guess when we're sort of looking at the character of Father Ishmael, uh, certainly as you explained, you know, a priest may be an unorthodox uh, choice for a lead character when it comes to, you know, what some may term as like a spy novel. But when you explain it in that way, you know, it sounds very intriguing. I guess, especially, you know, that you got this idea to make the main character a priest uh, sort of just, you know, one day. Uh, so I'd love to sort of know more about in the narrative, like how he sort of gets recruited, like what's the premise of him getting recruited and so on. And I guess in, in real life, like how his experience as a priest may have made him like a good spy. Two, those are two interesting questions. The way, uh, I'll start with the second one. The reason, there are two reasons that he can become a good recruited agent uh, or spy. One is that as a priest, he knows how to keep secrets. So that's part of what priests do in the seal of the confessional and the sacrament of reconciliation. So it's woven into the fabric of their, of their identity as a priest. And and that's sacrosanct. So that part is known, but the other part is that the, he has the ability to form trusting relationships uh, with a wide variety of people. And that's because of his background, both in Texas and in Mexico and, and his prior service in the military with an elite, uh, very secretive military intelligence unit uh, that has no name, 
but that it recruited him when he was in the military after when he was a much younger man. And part of part of the way in which he's recruited is that it, there's a paradox here, which is that even though he lives in a world of secrets, there are really no secrets in this world, especially in Mexico. So the US government, the Mexican government, and the cartels uh, quickly become aware of his prior uh, professional background and abilities. And that probably plays a role in the novel in drawing him in. But one of the things I liked about a priest is that it gave me the novelistically, uh, in a literary frame, the ability to create a lot of ambiguity and it's deliberate. And I want the reader to think about the ambiguity, which is why did he, why did he join that military unit? Uh, why did he leave that military unit? How did he become a priest? What made him make the decision to be involved in these complex negotiations, likely knowing that it would draw him back to a world, a harrowing, haunting, dangerous world that he had left. Um, and, and that had traumatized him. So I leave a lot of those ambiguities up to the reader to imagine. So Ken, when we kind of think about the looking at a broad level, the, the book takes place in the 90s. I mean, clearly from your career, you know, you've traveled the world, you've worked in diplomacy, um, you know your history quite well. I'm curious how much research went into this because is it, how much of it maybe stays true to the transnational security themes or the geopolitics of the time and how much did you have maybe some uh, literary flexibility in you know, the, this world you're creating? The, the characters are fictitious and they're a product of my imagination. I've had some uh, readers already email me or ask me, who is this based on? And I said, sorry, it's fiction. Uh, but, but and, and certainly there's, I take some liberties as any fiction writer would in writing a mystery, but Certain events that happened uh, were were very real, such as the in the middle of the book, there's a chapter that talks about Sarajevo at the end of the Bosnian War. And I've been to Sarajevo many times, first time in 1968, then in 1975, and then as a diplomat from 2008 to 2013. And I speak Bosnian fluently, and I'm very familiar with the with the horrors of the war. Uh, I've, I've hitchhiked through Bosnia and driven through Bosnia as a as a teenager, uh, and and so it's part of my my history and my background. So I I wanted to write about the genocide. I wanted to set it in the '90s so I could capture that particular moment at a time in the novel, and that part is interwoven with the tale of Yuri, the traumatized Russian Spetsnaz veteran and GRU liaison, who was a witness at Srebrenica in July of 1995, where 7,000 Muslim men, women, and children were slaughtered by um, the Serbian, the Bosnian Serb forces led by uh, General Ratko Mladic, uh, a, a war criminal, and ordered by Dr. Radovan Karžić, a convicted war criminal who's serving time in The Hague, and who, interestingly, I profiled with Dr. Gerald, the late Dr. Gerald Post in 1997 and published that in a psychiatric forensic journal. 
So Ken, I think it may be a good idea to actually maybe share with us the prologue uh, of your novel so that way we can further maybe dissect some of this in a bit more in-depth way and also yeah. give us the readers like a little bit of a preview uh, so they can go out and buy your book. Yeah, the, there are th the prologue is a dream and there are three important dreams in the novel that all, uh, I, won't, I don't want to give any spoiler alerts, but I'll tell any reader they're very important. And I'm a psychiatrist, so I love dreams. And, and the idea of using dreams as a literary device is not my own. Uh, the, one of the greatest psychologists of all time and greatest writers, Fyodor Dostoevsky, in Crime and Punishment, those who have read that will remember that Raskolnikov has the dreams of murdering the old women before he does it. So let me read it. It's a short uh, three-page uh, read here. The dream always began in the same manner. He was alone, standing on a street corner near El Angel, in the middle of downtown Mexico City, waiting, praying, searching for a sign. He could smell the odors of the city. He could feel its energy, its pulsations, its sensibility, el sabor, the taste. What Eliot Weinberger, the famous translator and poet, called karmic traces. He stood in the heat, beads of sweat dripping down his neck, his clerical collar, his cassock, even his sandals. The noise was impressive, millions of cars zipping around him at the roundabout, honking, people yelling, and he waited. He had been left a voicemail on his cell phone with instructions. The voice had been soft, a woman's, telling him to be there at noon and to wait for a signal. But he had no clue as to the signal or who would deliver the message. He had risen early, said his daily prayers, including the rosary, and had washed, showered, and dressed in his sandals, brown cassock, and cleric's collar. He didn't shave, and his appearance favored a three-day growth. Back then, he had been young and felt that a priest should be comfortable fitting in with young people, the next generation. That was the spirit of Vatican II, and one embodied by the new pope. He counted cars, tried to count them all, read the license plates, odd or even. That would indicate the day of the week, per the city's strict emission regulations. He counted one, two, three, all the way to 100, and then began again. As a child in America, he had lived near a farm and counted passing train cars every morning before prayers in school. He couldn't make out the hostage. He was young and American dressed in jeans, a guayabera, and sandals. What was he doing in Mexico City? Why? He didn't know. There were no signs, no answers. The hostage had a wife and a young child. The wife was Mexican, a beautiful woman with little makeup, long brown hair and dark eyes. In the dream, she held her young child's hand and smiled. Dreams are wishes or wish fulfillments. That's what his confessor had once told him. He had counted 497 cars when he suddenly found himself hooded alone in a darkened room. A man with a calm voice, an elderly gentleman wearing a suit and speaking in Spanish murmured softly to him. He quoted passages from the Bible, recited Psalms, including his favorite, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Then he switched to Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom should I be afraid? When Father Ishmael tried to speak, he was mute, frightened. His interlocutor again spoke softly, telling him not to fear, but to wait. He gave him a glass of water and departed. Only the darkness remained. 
Days went by, no food, just water. The cell was a cool, dark place, but clean. There was a nightstand with a Bible and a pitcher of water. His phone was gone. The interlocutor returned daily. He spoke slowly, reciting passages from the Bible. He recited poetry, the words of the great poet Octavio Paz from the poem Sunstone. I travel along the edge of your thoughts and my shadow falls from your white forehead. Guinness, his interlocutor asked. He replied, who am I? What do you want from me? Nothing at all, just the truth, replied the gentleman. I do wish to know what were you doing at El Angel? What were you waiting for? Why are you here? Who are you? I have your cell phone, passport, and your ID card. You are a priest, right? What is a priest doing standing in the middle of Mexico City near El Angel? Please think carefully and answer me. I don't know anything. The next moment brought a hard whack to his knee with the gentleman's cane. He screamed, dropping to the ground, writhing in pain. All he heard was the tap, tap, tap of the cane on the floor. And then the man's calm voice again. Please tell me now. Stop, stop, stop. Jesus Christ, please stop. He later realized the gentleman had left. He never saw him again, but he smelled his cologne and could feel and hear that soft, mellifluous voice like a brook or a shallow creek. Next, the hostage appeared. The young American now wore a dark suit with a conservative tie, double-breasted, buttoned nicely. His shoes were gleaming and Father Ishmael could smell the polish, a nice smell like a shoe store or a barber shop from his youth, where his father had taken him as a child to listen to the laughter and tales of men. But the hostage never spoke. His wife and child appeared next, weeping softly and holding the hostage's hand. The hostage smiled. His wife's tears fell upon the floor of the room. She walked over to him, removed the hood. The water and Bible had vanished. She touched the hostage's face gently, then walked out the door, leaving him in the room alone in emptiness. Father Ishmael woke up screaming, then weeping, then laughing slapping himself on his legs over and over. He's alive, I'm alive. God is great, God is great. Dreams are wishes and I'm alone, always alone, but yes, God is with me. Jesus is with me always. Jesus, siempre estás conmigo. Well, thank you for that, Ken. Uh, it's, so, it's actually so great hearing you read it back because you know I just read the book and listening to it again, as, as for those of you who end up reading the book, which I hope you all do, this will make a lot more sense as you read the book and a lot of themes come back out through it. And as you return to kind of the prologue, this dream sequence. And so um, thank you again, Ken. Um, so I want to next move to a conversation about more of the psychological aspects. Of, of course, you're, you're a psychiatrist. Uh, I imagine that both diplomats, intelligence officers, assets are very uniquely positioned in some of their experiences, behaviorally, you know, some of the stresses they're put under. And, you know, clearly, I mean, you have a lot of interesting characters in here. You have intelligence officers, diplomats, all these people I just referred to. Are there some unique challenges? And of course, having served as a physician diplomat that you encounter, particularly with those who are in these very challenging, high risk um, positions that are maybe different than other types of people. Yes, there, there, there are incredible joys and challenges, and it's a, it's a wonderful career. And I have nothing but the greatest admiration for 
the diplomats, intelligence officers, and, and military officers that I've worked with over the years overseas. It's a very special kind of life, but to adapt to it, especially in, in high-risk environments, such as Bosnia during the war or Russia, which is a high-risk environment at any time, and Mexico, which was a very dangerous place when I worked there. It still is a critical crime threat, kidnap threat. You always have to be in these type of places. Uh, you have a heightened sense of awareness. And, and to, to succeed in these places, diplomats and intelligence officers have to be humble and they have to they have to be open to other cultures and other experiences and they have to have empathy with the host culture and have an interest and curiosity about it that kind of outweighs the danger if you will um it certainly helps to speak foreign languages uh many of the people that diplomats and intelligence officers deal with speak perfect english but it's always a wonderful icebreaker when you speak to someone in their native language, it shows respect. And, it, and it, you they unconsciously, I've seen this happen even in my work as a psychiatrist, when I speak Spanish to a Spanish speaking patient, they, their eyes light up and they widen into a smile. They're shocked that the gringo can speak Spanish. And I found this to be true in Russia and in Bosnia and Serbia and, and Mexico and different places I've served. So I think that that curiosity and empathy and ability to handle ambiguity, uncertainty, and be open to other cultures is critically important in helping our diplomats and intel officers deal with the stressors of, of these places where they serve. And they have to be able to dive deep into the mission, but at the same time, you live as a guest in a foreign country. So you have to adapt and let the foreign culture teach you everything that you need to know to adapt. So Ken, so when we talk about the psychology of negotiation, I mean, some of your work uh, on leadership analysis, right? Like a lot of that has uh, contributed to how presidents may, you know, negotiate with their counterparts. I think Ken, in the past, in Kribi, you gave a great example, perhaps, of President Jimmy Carter when he was at Camp David. Uh, he basically had done leadership profiles of Anwar Sadat, the Egyptian president, and Menachem Begin, the Israeli prime minister, leadership profiles of them that helped him actually have an effective negotiation strategy. And I'm sort of curious as to how some of your work with leadership analysis uh, contributed to how you wrote some of these parts in the book around uh, negotiation. I think the, the key point there, and thank you for pointing that out, that, that work uh, for President Carter was done by my mentor, the late Dr. Gerald Post in the famous Camp David profiles, which are declassified and can be read online by your listeners. And that's certainly an aim of, one of the aims of leadership analysis is to give senior policymakers all the way up to the level of the president, give them an edge in diplomatic uh, negotiations. But the world of hostage negotiation is yet a different world. And I've, I've had experience in that world in dealing with hostage cases involving diplomats uh, overseas. Um, psychiatrists and psychologists are never the primary negotiators in these settings, but we provide medical support uh, to the hostages uh, when they're released. And we may work as part of the team to anticipate those medical and psychological needs when the hostages are released. So we will work closely with 
the primary hostage negotiators and the leadership at, at embassies to help in these very delicate situations. So I've I've had a lot of training in in this regard, both uh, in the State Department and and both taken and taught courses and in courses in hostage negotiation, SEER psychology conferences uh, run by the U.S. military, and and other work uh, other work that I've uh, done and learned on my own. I think the important thing in these things is to try and have what FBI experts such as uh, Gary Nessner and Chris Voss, special agents, have written a lot about this called tactical empathy. And I think that's sort of a more narrow view, but you need empathy to negotiate and understand your adversaries and your enemies. Uh, and if you don't have empathy, then you're not going to get anywhere. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to agree with them, but you have to have some kind of understanding, the ability to put yourself in, in their shoes. And tying that in with the novel, uh, the character of Father Ishmael has a, has a unique sensitivity and empathy in this regard to the different people that he interacts with uh, uh, in the novel, from a, a cartel, an elderly cartel leader, to uh, a GRU general, to a, um, the, the diplomats, the ambassadors, and the CIA officers that he interacts with the nuncio that he interacts with in two different countries. That's the apostolic equivalent of an ambassador and in the Mexican government authorities that he interacts with. He has to have a, an empathy and understanding to try and see where he fits into that role. Uh, without a doubt. And I'm glad you brought this up because uh, as you kind of said, you know, the, the book does chart through a, a variety of different quote unquote negotiations. And so um, how much of you know the cultural and historical backgrounds of those who engage in negotiations informs the styles of approaching a negotiation? Because I imagine hostage negotiation might be very unique um, when it comes to types of negotiations, but even still, there, there have to be, I imagine, strategies when you're approaching someone from Russia versus someone from, from Mexico. And I'm curious how maybe your, your writing style or in approaching the negotiations for, for different individuals change to, uh, to account for difference in histories and people's cultures. I'll share a personal story. They have to be, you have to deal with people as, as a human being. Um, I was in, I'll, I'll tell a couple of stories. I was in um, Mexico and I've, I've spent a lot of time in situations where I'm the only gringo in the room with hundreds of Mexicans. So you have to figure out how do you fit in? How do you open up? How do you get people to open up to you? Uh, and, and humility really goes a long way. Good negotiators, the ones I've worked with and known, whether they're diplomats or intelligence officers or, or law enforcement special agents, the best ones had this ability to be humble. They like people, they're people persons, if you will. And they can they have that ability and some of the characters in the novel show that ability to, to, to have a naturalness about them. And I tried to, in my own personal life, I tried to emulate that, whether I was in Mexico or uh, in, in Russia. I trained in, in martial arts in all these countries. So when you go to a dojo, I'm an Aikidoist, and I trained in the Russian martial arts sistema. And my teachers were all GRU Spetsnaz officers, combat veterans. 
and you 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 first when you walk into a, a new school or a dojo as it's called in Japanese in Aikido you offer to be the crash dummy or let people hit you first or throw you around first and then that makes people comfortable with you so I adopted that kind of approach from my martial arts study to sort of blend in with different cultures and I trained in Mexico uh, with with the top Aikidoists in Mexico I trained in uh, in Russia with the top Aikidoists and top Sistema people. I was actually an interpreter for an international seminar there in Russia. So I, I think that that kind of approach helps. That's how I did it from my uh, personal point of view. And, and I think also in other, in other cultures, I was in uh, Dhaka, Bangladesh once for the first time and I had I had an extra afternoon or morning because it was Friday and I forgot that the embassy was closed on Friday because that's the day of prayer in a Muslim country. So I, my flight didn't leave till the afternoon. So I walked around old Dhaka and I had a crowd of 300 people following me. And I was, I did not see any white people and they came up to me and started talking to me in Bengali. I don't speak Bengali, but they said, American. I said, yes, salam alaikum. And then they brighten and they said, wassalam alaikum. That's the traditional greeting in a Muslim country. It's the only word I knew. But you have to find a way to break the ice in different cultures. So Ken, as we round out this conversation, uh, is Father Ishmael going to perhaps have a series of books coming up? Or are you planning on writing any more? Uh, and also, are, are there any sort of parting thoughts that you have for our audience to keep in mind as to sort of read this book? Yeah, I'll, uh, the, I'll answer the second question first. I hope that listeners and readers will appreciate that while it's a mystery and, and it has elements of a thriller, including a spy thriller, it's not a traditional spy thriller. It's really a novel about faith. And throughout the novel, the character of Father Ishmael, his faith, his humanity is tested in these in these very difficult and sometimes gruesome situations. So that's something I wanted to uh, uh, certainly highlight. And there are also characters that, I tried to humanize characters that are adversaries or the enemy. For example, the characters of some of the cartel leaders that he negotiates with or the GRU general. Uh, where there's a chapter in the book where a psychiatrist working for the embassy treats the GRU general's wife for a severe depression at the request of, of the general and the, and the CIA station chief. Um, so I, I'm, the GRU are a ruthless, brutal military intelligence service, but yet I found myself wanting to humanize not only the GRU general, but also the traumatized Spetsnaz veteran who had been a victim of war in Afghanistan where he had served in Chechnya and Grozny, who had lost his family to violence, and then in Bosnia. And that weaves through the tale. And then the tale of some other interesting characters, including a deep cover Mossad officer who shows up throughout and sort of weaves a larger, he ties in the idea of, of genocide and Holocaust in one of his uh, last chapters in the book, which is important because it ties in Srebrenica with uh, with his own, what happened to his own people during World War II in the Holocaust. So I try to weave things together. The answer is, will there be a sequel? Yes, there's already a sequel in the works. 
It's set about 10 years later in the 2000s, and it involves a, a missing high-level North Korean, and it's based on a real North Korean who I shook hands with as a young man. Wow. Well, you got me excited. Uh, for everyone listening, please make sure to check out Ken's fabulous book, The Negotiator's Cross. Uh, you can pre-order it now. Um, and also check out his other great work. As, as Andre mentioned at the start, we had two previous podcasts with Ken. He always uh, is doing media, and I'm sure he'll do even more with this great book out. And so, uh, as always, Ken, it's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for hosting me. It's a real pleasure and honor.